Turn please to Mark in chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, I want to begin reading with verse 18 through 27. Mark in chapter 12. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we pray as we come to your word that you would enable us to hear it, to to receive it, that it would find its mark in us uh, in a way that transforms our lives, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace, lives to live, all that you call us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question, teacher, and they said, Moses wrote for us that a man's brother, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error, because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now among the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead, but of the living? You are badly mistaken. Now, it's important for us to understand the seriousness of, of this passage as well as these passages about which we've been speaking because Jesus is being examined and he's being examined really under this question of by what authority do you, do you do these things? Do you have the authority to call us to follow you? Do you have the authority to call us to love you as we would love God? Do you have the authority to call us to trust you as we would trust in God? Do you have the authority to forgive sins? Do you have the authority to grant eternal life? By what authority do you do these things? And so they're coming to Jesus, these various religious leaders, and they're examining him. Because you see, Christianity is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. Everything points to him. And so we must have a great faith in him, a great sense that he really truly is the Son of God. We must be, and I, I can only say it this way, we must be very impressed with him. It sounds rather uh, condescending to him, and I don't mean it in that way. It isn't that he's out to try to impress us, but we need to be impressed with him, to be captivated by him, to be enthralled by him, to everything about him, to embrace and to love and to respect and to revere and to honor. And the way that he impresses us with this great impression that he is the Son of God is, is through his word and then us seeing that, that lived out. And so we come to this particular passage looking, if you will, to be impressed by Jesus, that he can impress upon us his greatness and that he truly is the Son of God and he really does have the authority to call us to follow him, to call, call us to love him, to call us to trust him, to embrace him with all of our might. And so, so here he comes. Now, it's interesting, this passage, because I've often, as many of us have, wondered about 
the afterlife. I mean, it's a preoccupation, if you will, with human beings to think about, is there life after death? It, it's kind of um, uh, an intuitive response for us to think that, yes, there is something more than this. If you read history, if you read the history of religion, uh, we realize that people are enthralled or captivated by this question, is there life after death? Something not. Some people believe, and I say believe because it is a, an act of faith, because none of us have been there to see it. But some believe that there is no afterlife, that when a person dies, that is the end of their existence. That that's it. Uh, that's rather counterintuitive to us. Because we've been spending our whole lives living and, 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 and embracing life and preserving life and then to think that at death we cease but there are many who hold that view it frees them from any sense of judgment but it relieves them of any hope of resurrection of life I suppose it's more common to believe in something that people refer to as the immortality of the soul that our souls live. Some more creative ones, it seemed to me, hold that ultimately this living soul finds its way into bodily existence again through something that we know as of incarnation, reincarnation, that, that people believe that these souls come back then uh, as a variety of things. Animals, people, just depending on one's life. It's a rather sad thing to, to think about since none of us have any great recollection of this previous life, but, but they would hold to that, it seems to me, to be something less than thrilling to think that it just keeps circling and cycling and circling and cycling. There are others, and this may be the most common American belief, at least as I take an informal poll amongst people, to believe that after one dies, by the very nature of having lived and died, one goes on to a presumably better place. Almost every funeral one attends for even an unbeliever, there's this sense that people say, well, now this person is at peace. And I want to say, how do you know that? Or that this person is looking down upon us smiling today. How do you know that? Well, that seems to be the most common, common belief after someone passes. We always hear those kinds of things. There's this sense, and it's an intuitive sense. It's, it's, it's a life-grabbing sense that there must be life after this life, lest this life be completely, be completely wasted. Now, of course, as Christians, you know, afterlife are us. I mean, this is a real key, important understanding for us, that yes, there is life beyond this life, this life in some sense of preparation for the next, uh, that this life isn't the completion of all that God had intended, thus we'll see it in the life, in the life to come. Um, we, we find it, um, for instance, uh, don't turn to these passages, I'll just run through a number very quickly, if you can keep up with me, fine. In John, if you can keep up to me, it means you probably grew up Baptist. Uh, but uh, in John 5, 
We read this, verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. See, this whole notion of eternal life, it goes on and on and on and on. And not only in terms of duration, but quality. It's the very life that comes from God. Whoever believes in me has eternal life and will not be condemned. So you see, this notion of, of life going on has an eternal life quality, but a condemned life option as well. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and now has come when the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who, will, who, who, who hear will live. For as the Father is life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. You remember in that parable that Jesus tells of the separation of the sheep from the goats that he says this in the end of Matthew chapter 25 Jesus says they will go away to eternal punishment that is the goats the one who did not love the people of God they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous uh, to eternal life and so we, we get this sense that at the end of this life there is judgment and some will have eternal life some will have eternal punishment but there is a living forever some will live eternal life some will live eternal punishment eternal death the seriousness of this is obviously huge you know the the great football verse I call it John 316 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life uh, Jesus is concerned to assure us that there is life after this life in John chapter 14 as Jesus is, is speaking with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, said this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. See, Jesus is telling his disciples and all those who believe in him, that he's going on to a place after this life and he's going to prepare a place for them, for us to come and to be with him after this life. In fact, in his, what we call his high priestly prayer, his prayer before his, his um, actual arrest, and Jesus says this in John 17 verse 2, for you, that is to his father, you granted him meaning the Son of God, you granted him authority over all people so that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And then he ends his prayer like this. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so Jesus is saying that he came so that those who believe in him would have life everlasting, would have eternal life, that he would go and prepare this place of everlasting life, and that his heart's desire then is that those who believe in him would be there for all eternity with him. We believe in life after death. Real life for all those who trust in Jesus, living but living eternal punishment, condemnation, for all those who don't trust in Jesus, all those for whom their sins are not forgiven. Paul understood this. 
But so in Philippians in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul's saying, here's, here's, here's the life of the Christian. We so much believe in this life after this life, and we so much believe that that life has dwelt in the presence of Christ, that we desire to be there. And so we desire to be out of this body and there. But yet we know that, first of all, that decision isn't left up to us as to when it's appropriate to go from here to there. And secondly, that as long as we're here, we know that's the very will of God for us to be here so that we can live a life of fruitfulness for the joy of others. And so Paul says, I'll stay, but there's a bit of my heart the desires that longs to be there. He's more explicit about this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, for instance. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 1, he says this. He says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and he's speaking figuratively, earthly tent, meaning our bodies, some of our bodies seem to sleep two, some sleep six, some bigger than that. But this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. That's this heavenly body. So we have this earthly tent. We have this heavenly dwelling that is not built by hands. Meanwhile, Paul says, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Now, you see, in this, Paul's getting to speak to us about this, again, life after this life. In this life, we have this body, and we live here on earth. We're believers in Christ, filled with His Spirit. Then, after we die, we leave this tent behind. It goes into the ground for some. For others, it's cremated. For some, it may be burned if you die in a fire. It may be destroyed in war. It may be, all kinds of things can happen to this body. But for the time then, for that time period, we're unclothed, as he'll say in a minute, found naked. This sort of disembodied spirit. But then a day will come, a day of the great resurrection, when our bodies will be raised and we'll be once again clothed. And so Paul says, the best case scenario is to be clothed in our heavenly bodies. The next best scenario, scenario is to be unclothed of anybody but in the presence of the Lord. And for now, we are clothed in this body and alive to glorify God and live for the joy of others. Are you with me? Are you thinking with me? Okay, this is important for us. Verse uh, three, because when we are clothed, that is, in our heavenly body, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, don't we? You ever monitor your groans when you just have the flu? <laughs> we just groan. It just you feel like you're going to die, and you want to, uh, and it's just the flu. 
let alone. We groan and we're burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. What purpose for which he's made made us ultimately for that purpose to be in his presence clothed in a heavenly tent in a heavenly body in a spiritual body that's what we were made for so we're on the way to what we were made for and as we'll see in a minute we're made to live not in some sort of floating heaven but in on some new earth as human beings verse 6 therefore we're always confident to know that as long as we're at home in the body we're away from the Lord in that immediate sense he's with us but not by sight so then he goes on to say we live by faith and not by sight we trust we'll see him we are confident I say and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord so when a believer dies one's body is whatever happens to it and then we arise to go spiritually disembodied soul it appears to be in the presence of the Lord which is good but not ultimate and then a day will come when we'll receive this new body at the day of resurrection now this new body's rather curious, seems to me. What's it really going to be like? Tall, short, hair, no hair? Uh, old, young? What happens to little children? Do they just immediately become like 37? Or what happens to people who are 103? Do they, or does age make any particular difference? And, and what really kind of kind of body is this you get this sense that it's it's sort of like the body that Jesus had right in Philippians for instance and uh, chapter 3 we read this verse 20 but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body and so there's this sense of this body that will be like the body of, of Jesus in some sense and we read so we heard some about this as we were singing turn to this one because we'll linger here for just a moment in first Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 35 Paul talks about this resurrected body he speaks of this resurrected body he says but someone may ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body will they come and Paul says how foolish I don't think that's so foolish I must say I mean that's sort of my question that <laughs> I'm told by him I'm foolish often because you see it's foolish in the sense that of course God can do this what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That is to say, this body's got to die first for the new one to come. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, just as a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But when God gives it 
a body as he has determined and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. That is to say, when you look at the seed and you know that's a seed and you know it's going to grow up into a plant. And while the plant continues from the seed, it's different. And he says, think of your body, this one, like a seed. And so your new one will be have similar characteristics, but different. As different as the plant is from the seed, as similar as the plant is to the seed. You'll say, oh yeah, that plant came, that, came from that seed. But wow. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable and is raised imperishable. It is sown in disorder, I'm sorry, dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. That is not ghostly, but that which is of the Spirit of God. For a place to live in the very presence of God. There's a sense in which you see, when we leave this life, and our hearts are utterly transformed, we ultimately receive a body consistent with that perfect heart. The bodies that we now have live on this earth. The bodies that we will have will live in the presence of God on the new earth. C.S. Lewis once put it like this. He says, when we're young and inexperienced, we're given unimpressive horses to learn on. It's only when we're ready to gallop and jump that we're given the great horses. Yes. A day will come when we'll be willing, when we'll be ready to gallop and jump. And then we'll be given that body which is consistent. Right now, we have fairly unimpressive bodies. They're weak. They're perishable. But a day will come when that will no longer be true. A day will come when we'll be given a body that's imperishable, that's in incorruptible. That's a spiritual, a spiritual body. Now, that's all very important, you see, because the Sadducees, these people with whom Jesus is speaking at the moment, the scripture says, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now that's astounding to us to see that by this point in the life of Judaism there were some, it was no, not a majority by any means, but there were some who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. And you can see that in the context of their lives. The Pharisees were those who were the separated ones. They were the ones who were anti-Rome. They were the ones who were trying, at least as they understood it, to uphold the law of God. They were in error in many situations, but, but that was who they were. The Sadducees, on the other hand, since they believed that life ended at death, that existence enter, uh, 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 ceased at death, then they joined hands with the Romans. They were very interested in accumulating wealth. They were very interested in putting all of their hope in this life. Because you see, they had no hope for the life to come. That's why they were very sad, you see. It's fairly lame, but you get the point. They were sad because they believed they had no hope for the life to come. 
And so they come to Jesus not as I come and not as you come with questions about the life to come. Because you see, their questions were not questions of faith. We come, I think, with questions of faith, wondering what it's going to be like because of the hope that we have. We desire to know something of what that's going to be like. And my suspicion is, if we had any categories really in our brain for what that's going to be like, God would have told us. But it's so different by way of quality that it's impossible for us to really grasp a hold of. So he says, just trust me. Just trust me. You'll be in my presence. It will be great. So we come with that kind of curiosity. They didn't come with a curiosity. They came with a puzzle. They came to Jesus with what they considered to be a, 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 an unsolvable puzzle. You get the impression that Sadducees had been terrorizing Pharisees and others with this little conundrum for, for generations. And it's an interesting one. In fact, I've wondered about this very kind of thing. What happens if a person has more than one spouse who is a Christian in this life? Uh, you see how it could happen here. This was the law of the land that if a woman's husband died, it was her brother, his brother's responsibility to take the marital responsibility. And so let's say all those brothers died and she ended up with seven husbands. Uh, who would be her husband? in the life to come, in the resurrection. Interesting question. Well, we have a similar question. What happens in the context of those who are Christians, believers, who have more than one Christian husband on earth? It can happen. Husbands can pass away and remarry. There can be certain divorces that take place and remarriage and so forth and so on. And so, who's... And then what about those who are single? Do they get husbands or wives in glory? What about those who who um, died as children, as what's going to happen in the context of their family life in heaven. I've wondered all those, all those kinds of things. How is this all going to, going to work out? And Jesus says to them, uh, you err because you do not know the scripture nor the power of God. And you see, that's, that's the guts of every error that we make. The guts of every error that we make as human beings is not knowing the scripture, not knowing the truth from God's perspective, not knowing what is really true, and then not believing that God is able, powerful enough, to fulfill all of his promises. That's where we live in the context of the sin of our lives, at least. And we don't know the scripture, we don't understand it, we, don't, we aren't well versed, no pun intended, in the scripture, but, and we don't know God's power. We don't believe him. So Jesus says, that's the source of your error here. It was the source of their error that they didn't know the scripture because while the Old Testament isn't as clear as the New Testament on the, on the life everlasting, uh, there was enough there. It was presumed that they should have gotten it from the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah speaks clearly in Isaiah chapter 26 about the dead rising. Daniel speaks in Daniel chapter 12 about the dead rising, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting punishment. You would wonder what they thought happened to Enoch and Elijah since they never died. God just took them. You wonder, what? Well, where'd they go? If there's no life after this one, then what happened? Did they just kind of blow up in space? What happened to them and everything about the scriptures about life 
Moses comes to the people and says, choose life. God delivers his people from from slavery and and death and protects them and protects them and protects them and promises to protect them. And, And then does that mean at the end of that protection, death finally wins, that there's no protection ultimately from the very thing from which we desire to be protected from death itself? And then, of course, he comes to them and he speaks to them from from Exodus in chapter 3 as Moses is at the bush he says and God announces himself to Moses by saying I am the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob not I was but I still am I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob well how can you say that if Abraham Isaac and Jacob no longer exist And how could it be any comfort at all to Moses if God came to him and said, listen, I made some really important promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now they don't exist anymore, so I'm going to make promises to you. If I were Moses, I would say, is there someone else who could make promises to me? But God comes to him and says, I am presently, right now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, see, you err. You didn't get it. You don't understand that God is not the God of the dead but the God of the living because you see he's powerful enough to overcome death I mean Jesus was all about that Jesus was all about overcoming sin and death Jesus was all about conquering death through his life and his sacrifice taking upon himself the very curse of the law that leads to death dying for sinners taking the sin of sinners on himself so that death would be defeated and then Jesus says by my authority let me give you a glimpse into glory let me tell you something that you may not have otherwise known that I know because I've been there I'm the very son of God I know this and I know that there is no marriage in heaven so you see your question is rather absurd Marriage and family is different in the context of heaven than it is on earth. Now, let me just warn you, don't go home this afternoon and say to your spouse if you're married, isn't it great that we're not going to be married in heaven? Um, Don't, 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 don't go there. Because marriage is fitting and suited for here for procreation, for having children, for companionship, for protection, for modeling the very love that Christ has for the church and the intimacy which he has with us. But when we're in glory, you see, marriage will have fulfilled its purpose for our intimacy will be with him, not in a sexual way, but in a spiritual way. And so that all that marriage points to, at least marriage in its perfection, all that marriage points to will be fulfilled in glory in Him and will be utterly, utterly satisfied. So you see, these Sadducees were very sad, should have been very sad in the context of their life, but everyone else in the hearing of Jesus who trusts in Him should be thrilled with this word because we do know that these bodies cry out to be healed, to be fixed, to be new. That our hearts cry out, to be healed, to be fixed, to be new. Our lives cry out to be in the very presence of God, to have things reflect Jesus and not our sin. And he says that day, 
is really, really coming. And you see, that's, that's the hope. Uh, that's the hope for us. Uh, for instance, in Romans in chapter 8, in verse 18, the apostle writes this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we are saved. He's saying, look, this is what's to come. You wonder what those groanings and what those longings are. You wonder what the dissatisfaction with this life is. It's the groaning for glory. It's the groaning to be complete. It's the groaning for what God has begun in you to come to utter completion. And that will come to utter completion as your hearts, as our hearts are perfected and our bodies are new. And that's our hope. And knowing that, you see, Paul uses that in the context of his own life. He applies it in the context of his own life to be able then to endure whatever he faces now. Because he knows that he can't be defeated. He knows that, that nothing can separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He knows that nothing can put an end to this. He knows that his hope is sure and certain. And so he can, he can even take risks, even risk his own life for the sake of the gospel because he knows that all is firm and all is sure. And so he writes this, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, in verse 13, he says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. And all of this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. He says, keep looking. The groanings that you have are good groanings. The longings that you have are good longings. And there is an end to it. And it's certain and sure. But how can we be convinced of that? How do we know? One of my favorite questions that I like to ask to unbelievers who are willing to talk to me honestly about things of God is, how do you know that? I just like that question. Because that seems to me to be the important one. How do you know that? I mean, when we, we spout off about eternal life and life everlasting and all that stuff, the question people should ask to us is, how do you know that? How do you know that that's really true? How do you know that there really is life after this life? How do you know that, that there's judgment to come? How do you know that there's glory for those who trust in Christ? How do you know that? How do you know that there's resurrection of the body? And of course, the answer always for us is, 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 is Jesus. 
I mean, that's, that's, you know, the little joke where the Sunday school teacher says, you know, what's gray and, 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 and has a bushy tail and, and uh, climbs up trees. And little kid raises his hand and he says, sounds like a squirrel, but I know you want me to say Jesus, you know, because always the answer is Jesus. And it is. Because, you see, Jesus lived and he died. And in his death, he conquered sin and death. And we know that he conquered sin and death because he came back to life. He didn't stay dead. And in his resurrection, he announces first and foremost that death is conquered. He announces that he is the very Son of God. He announces that he really did die for the sins of sinners and pay the penalty. And when he rises, the scripture says that he is the firstborn among many brethren, meaning that all those who trust in him will to be raised from the dead. That's how we know. So that night in which Jesus was betrayed and he took bread with him was tremendously significant. He took this bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What is it we remember? So many things, but at least this. We remember that when he died, he conquered death, that we might live. And that life starts now. He gives us this deposit which guarantees the life to come. The Holy Spirit who lives in us and cleanses us so that we may have assurance to live in the very presence of God here. But then we know a day will come at our death when we'll meet Him. And we know then a day will come as He returns and all are caught up with Him. Those who have died will be raised to life those who are alive at that moment will be transformed and given this resurrected body to live before him in complete intimacy with him companionship communication protection provision completely understood by this one who perfectly loves you Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and your grace. And Lord, even as we speak about things which are almost unspeakable for, how can we know other than the great testimony of Jesus? So Father, even as we speak of these things which are so strange to us, we pray that you would cause them to work deep in us so that our hope would be in these great words of Jesus. And he has conquered sin and death. So regardless of what are light and momentary troubles we may now find ourselves in, we can know that the glory that awaits us far outweighs them all. And we can stand firm. And we can live for your glory and the joy of others. Now I pray that you'd set apart this bread and this juice, Father, to 
remind us of Jesus, its texture, its taste, its smell. Even as we look upon it, we think about him. And Lord Jesus, that you would meet us here and give us great assurance. Don't be afraid, but stand firm. For the hope that is to come is great. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites all those who really know and understand and believe that he has conquered sin and death. Understand that by his death we then live. Understand that by his resurrection he is the very living proof, the living guarantee, the living assurance of our life to come and our resurrection. So he invites all those who understand to be, themselves to be sinners and in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. Those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and depend upon him alone for their salvation. And who desire, therefore, in this great hope of what is to come, to live a life that is pleasing to him. So let me invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. And as you come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat it, know this, that he has conquered sin and death. If you believe in him, you shall live. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we know that it is well with our souls because of all that Christ has done. And we know too that a day will come when it will be well with our bodies. For we, they will be resurrected. It's astounding to us to think, Father. But yet it is true. And thus, Father, I pray that you sustain the longings in our hearts to be in your presence and to be complete with the assurance, the hope that we have that in Jesus it is finished it is sure, it is certain and thus we are free now to get on with the work to which you've called us so we pray that we shall know all of the benefits that are ours in Christ Jesus that you may be glorified through us in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. To do, I remind you that elders are available to pray. Also, that <clears throat> our Sunday school classes will begin soon. So please uh, move along to our classes as well. The response to the benediction is, is true for us on these communion Sundays is to sing together the great praise of God, the doxology. So please receive God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. <clears throat> Yeah.